Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome along to Eurosport's very own snooker podcast, The Break with me, Andy Goldstein. And of course, we are into the latter stages of the tournament in Sheffield. And before it's over, we'll have one final podcast for you to enjoy. And as usual, you'll be able to download this and other episodes from your platform of choice. Now, as the World Championship finals are approaching, I'm delighted to be joined by two people who have made it all the way to the final at the Crucible in Joe Johnson, the 1986 champion of the world, and my favourite, the whirlwind, Jimmy White. Jimmy, I'll come to you first. Now, of course, you've made six World Championship final appearances over your career. The first one was way back in 1984, which bizarrely was the first match of snooker that I watched that got me into the sport. I fell in love with it because of that final. Can you can you remember too much about it? Because it was such a long time ago and you were so young as well. Yeah, what I remember about that final was that um, the first session I was 12-4 down and the late Jim, yeah, I said to him when I come off, he said, you're complaining about your tip. I said, yeah, I said, it's so hard. He said, well, do you, why don't you change it? And I changed it with him. And we was actually in the crucible till half one in the morning, practicing on the match table. You know, imagine doing that now. It's, um, and I went from 12-4 down to 13-11. I ended up losing 18-16. But the game I actually lost was the fourth game of the session. And I was 50 in front with three reds left. And uh, Davis cleared up and he had two doubles in that break. Not that it's affected me or I have any sleepless nights <laughs> or anything. <laughs> but I remember that was, that was in 1984. Um, you know, it's a shame that um, my tip wasn't in better condition for the first day, I think. Jim, let me ask you, because I've spoke to you many a time about this off camera. And, and it's interesting you've told me that you didn't, it didn't really affect you when you lost in that final because you just thought it was a matter of time before you became champion of the world. Yeah, I, yeah, I didn't, um, you know, I, I didn't, I, it was sort of a fantastic match, you know, and it was a great workout. And Steve Davis at the time, you know, he was by far better than any, Joe will tell you in a minute, you know, when Joe beat him, it, it, Joe played absolutely fantastic from start to finish. But the, the, Davis was the most, you know, consistent player ever. In 1981, the, the year that he won everything, I played him in the first round and um, he, I, he beat me 10-8. I was 6-1 down and he went on to like, totally dominate. And so from 82, okay, Higgins won. But, you know, most of the 80s, it was Steve Davis was winning probably 80% of his matches. 
course, there's one year he didn't win it in the 80s, a couple of years, but one of them we're going to talk about now was 1986. And that's because you, Joe Johnson, became champion of the world. I'll, I'll talk about that year in more detail in a moment, but I'm curious, you got to the final the following year. Was there more pressure on you in 86 or 87? Because in 87, you're coming back as defending champion, but you've already won the world title. But in 86, you haven't, and you've got a chance. So which one did you feel more pressure in? Yeah, definitely 87. I mean, in 86, uh, I had nothing to prove. I was a complete underdog, and um, I played that way. I mean, I'd never earned as much money in my life as what I had done when I got through to the final. So even if I'd have lost the final, I've got all these ranking points and I've got a tremendous amount of money that I'd never seen before. You know, because up until that time, you know, I was living in a council house. So it completely changed my life. And Joe, you've told me before as well, I find this incredible, but the year you won it, you nearly didn't even get there. Is that right? Because someone made a mistake with regards to ranking points? Well, yeah, that's exactly right. You know, if it hadn't been for my manager, John Rookin, and uh, my other manager, Wally Springett, um, I, I was number 17 in the world when the new rankings came out. And my manager, John Rookin, I don't think you know this, Jimmy, but um, he, he found a merit point, not a ranking point, a merit point. And a merit point at that time was that I'd won one more frame than Bill Werbenuk because we were, we were level on points. And he rang the WPBSA up and said, um, Joe's got one more ranking point, uh, one more merit point. And they looked into it and said, yeah, you're quite right. He has. He's, he's in the top 16. So... <laughs> I was in the top 16 waiting for a qualifier the year that I won it rather than having to qualify and play one of the top 16 players. So what, what a, a defining moment that was in my career, really. Was there, um, how, how, how long before the World Championship started that year did that mistake get corrected, Joe? Oh, yeah, it was, it was more or less straight away as the rankings came out after the previous year's World Championship. When Dennis Taylor won the World Championship, the new, the new ranking system came out, a uh, new ranking list came out, and that's when I was number 17. My manager queried it. Okay, because they're different. Obviously, they're different now, the rankings. They're updated on a sort of week-by-week -week basis, but back then it was a year-by-year -year basis, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, they really are defining moments because, you know, it wasn't just finding that merit point. It was quite a, a combination of things because... I was there as a, a top 16 seed waiting for a qualifier and I'd never beaten Dennis Taylor. In fact, he'd murdered me at the Crucible a couple of years previously, beating me 10-1. So I, although I'd, I'd won my first match, I didn't really expect to win my second match because, I'd, I'd, as I said, I'd never beaten Dennis Taylor. But Mike Hallett beat him. He beat the defending champion and I'd always had good results against Mike Hallett. So I, I wasn't afraid of playing Mike Hallett. But I, I would have been very wary about playing Dennis Taylor, although I, I think I was a slightly better player than what I was two or three years previously. But that worked out unbelievably well for me. Jimmy, let me ask you, because at the moment when we're recording this podcast, we're down to the last four, so we've got the one table set up. And uh, everyone I speak to that's played at the Crucible and that's played on the one table set up tells me how different it is. Let me ask, is there a different feeling going into that arena with one table from a semi-final to a final? Or, or does that semi-final get you used to what's coming your way for the final? You know, obviously I've been in, um, I've been in 10 semi-finals. And um, 
I've been in six finals. So I know what to um, what happens with the one table. The difference between the one table and the two table, when you're playing in a two table situation, it doesn't matter how focused you are, at the back of your mind, you're thinking the applause is going to go at any time on your backswing. And uh, it's very difficult to get that out of your mind. When that goes, the dividing wall comes up and it's one table. You've got the arena to yourself. There's no other place in the world like it. Obviously, you're playing for the world championships, so there's all that added pressure. But, it's, you know, it's a, it's a perfect venue. And the difference between the one table and the two table is like night and day. And, uh, you know, you, it's so, such, a, such a pleasure to play there. But it can also be daunting, you know, if you're getting beat, you know, the walk to the table, um, it seems to get longer and longer. I was out there yesterday with Neil Folds, who was doing something about, he was talking about when you beat him, Joe. Oh, yeah. In, in, the, um, in the semi-final. And, uh, you know, when you're sitting in your seat, we went there, and it's not that much of a walk, but when you're getting hammered, it seems you're walking about two miles <laughs> to the table. It's incredible. It's like a different venue, isn't it? You know, when it goes down to one table, it's like walking in a different venue. And if you've never been there before, Jimmy's been there a lot of times, but I've only been there twice. And, you know, it's like, well, there's no comparison between the, the two table and one table. It's like walking in a different venue. Yeah, it's like our, our Wimbledon, you know, our FA Cup all into one, you know. Joe, did it, did it help you when you went back the following year because you knew what to expect? Did that help you, do you think? Do you think, like, like Kyron Wilson, of course, he got to the final last year, he's doing really well this year. Will, will he learn so much from that experience, do you think? Yeah, I'm sure he will because, you know, it, it, the, the feeling is so um, overwhelming. It's, it, it's like a drug being in the semi-final. It's, it's what you, I mean, obviously, you want to win the championship, but in your mind, you want to get to the one-table setup because it's such a fantastic feeling and that's... Uh, it's a feeling that Jimmy's had many, many times, and you know, I, I'm a bit jealous of that. I've only been there twice. But, <laughs> you, you won know. one. I like to have won one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you, you know, the, the, what you've done, Jimmy, is quite incredible. Jimmy, I tell you what, it's also great to have fans back, of course, now. Um, and, and when you get fans, you obviously get distractions. We've had sweet Rappergate, we've even had some commentators commentating a bit too loud. None, of course, were Eurosport. I just want to emphasize that. But in your experience, have you had any distractions um, or, or moments that the audience has driven you mad during big matches that you can remember? Well, the other day I got asked for an autograph, first time for so long, you know, it was very strange. I'm like, I've, like, I've double took, sort of looked at them thinking, say, oh, yeah, yeah, me, yeah, okay, you do know me. I didn't know what was going on. It's been so long. But I found that in the Crucible Theatre, especially with the two tables, if you're focused, you didn't hear a thing. If you wasn't focused, you could hear someone saying to his wife, no, I don't want one of them sweets. I want the strawberry ones. You know, you can hear conversations if you're not, because it's that close to where you're sitting. But if you're focused, some, some reason you don't, you know, some of the greatest players in the world, like especially like Hendry, um, Davis, you know, they, they had that great ability to stay in their bubble and. Uh, you know, didn't let anything enter. And uh, But if you was playing okay and you was focused, you didn't hear anything. But if you wasn't 
100% on your game, you could hear conversations and it can be very off-putting, yeah. Tunnel vision. Joe, there are some um, there are some venues where you're sitting, you know, maybe 20 feet in front of the audience. If you go back to the Wembley Conference Centre, you know, they were quite some distance behind you. But here, from someone like myself watching on telly, it almost feels as though you're, you're part of the audience. You're sitting amongst them. Do you yeah. prefer that or do you prefer it the other way? No, I prefer the audience being close. I mean, I, I grew up in working men's club atmosphere where we played in lots and lots of invitational tournaments. And you were right on top of people. You know, the lights went out and there was just the, the, the light above the table, a little bit of smoke going here and there because we could smoke at the time and everybody in the club could. It was a, a, a tremendous atmosphere. And when, when I turned professional and um, I think my first match was at the Guildhall, I, I just couldn't, couldn't um, get involved with the people. And uh, that was part of my game and life if you like. So when I qualified for the Crucible, it was brilliant. It, you know, the, the, the people were right on top of you kind of thing. And um, it added to the atmosphere. It was brilliant. Joe, let me ask you something about um, what Ronnie said when he was in the Eurosport studio. I think it was yesterday. He was reflecting on his defeat to Anthony McGill. And he, if you like, had some words of wisdom for, for Mark Selby and Stuart Bingham, for their semi-final, he said the key to winning the final is damage limitation. Can you relate to that? What what advice would you give players? Yeah, I, I completely agree with that because you, you don't play well every session. You know, I, I remember one of the sessions against Davis in 86 is, um, I think it was something like two each or something like, I can't remember exactly, but he went 7-3 or 7-4 up. He won four on the bounce. and. Um, I'd never practiced in between sessions. No, no matter what the, the, the session was, you know, if there was a day between or two days between, I never practiced. I just had the feel of the main match table, kept that in my mind, knew, knowing that I was going to get the feel of that again when I played. But when I, when I lost the first four frames of uh, one of the sessions, I went and practiced for the first time because I, I thought to myself, I need to get two of these next four frames and really do need to get them. Otherwise, he's going to do what he did to so many people. You know, he, he just overwhelmed players. He really did. You know, he, he was so consistent, as Jimmy's already said. You know, he just destroyed players. So I practiced for the first time and, and I, I wanted to limit the, the damage type of thing. And in fact, I won the next four, which really helped me. That won you the world championship for me. Yeah, yeah, because he could have at that well, stage. He could have overwhelmed. If he gets two of them four frames, you're you're behind. You've got a whole day to stew. You know, and, uh, the way he was. That's Steve right. Davis, he didn't even breathe out in them days. Yeah, that's right. He <laughs> was so tight. <laughs> I like that one. That's a beauty. But the good thing about playing Davis for me is that I'd never played him as a professional, and yet I'd played a lot of money matches with him. You remember the Northern Snooker Centre and what have you? Well. You know, he used to come up there and play me for money and I'd always beaten him. I'd never lost to, to Steve. But, you know, that was as an amateur. So the next time I played him as a professional was in the world final. So he didn't hold the same fear for me as what he did for a lot of people. Had, he, had I played him quite a few times as a professional, probably would have had that fear, but I never had it. Jim, let me ask you, I know, of course, you've not won the World Championship, but you've won other events which have a similar distance, obviously the UK, and you won the World Match Play, which I think was also up to 18. So um, 
what advice would you give players that are coming into a tournament which is as long as this one is, but also as grueling, you know, to get to 18 frames or I think it was 16 when you won the UK. I mean, it's like no other event on the planet. Yeah, I think I think the, the main thing is to tell a new player who's getting to a semi-final or final when it's over a distance. So you have to break it down. Each of these four sessions, you have to break, there's eight lots of four. You have to break them down to mini sessions and try and, you know, win as many mini sessions as you can and, uh, you know, just focus on that session, not look at the overall score. See, a lot of players will think, well, you know, if I can get, I'm 5-3 down, but I'm playing better than him. You know, you've got to just, in my advice was to break it down and play each four session as one match. Uh, Joe, I want to talk to you a bit more about when the, you became champion of the world. Are there certain moments throughout the 17 days or certain moments throughout the final that jump off the page that you remember? Well, going back to what Jimmy's just said there, I completely agree with that. You've got to treat them as mini sessions for sure, but you cannot afford yourself to think of yourself as winning it. You can't afford to think of yourself as losing it. it those kind of thoughts, if they come into your mind, you're just not focused. You've got to think of the snooker and just what, what you're going to be doing the next frame or even the next shot. Because as soon as you start thinking about outside, um, pressures then you you know you, you half beat really uh, jimmy i won't ask if there are moments from certain finals that you recall but um <clears throat> there must be matches at the crucible you look back with fond memories i think i think um you know obviously you know two or three of them, of them matches with Stephen. you know they was uh you know i had chances to win i didn't i didn't actually go all the way but uh you know i i enjoyed them you know i wasn't i'm not a player who's resentful, you know, I'm, and I'm still playing. So, you know, obviously um, when I completely give up, then um, I'll be able to answer the question, but I'm still playing. But, you know, I had some fantastic matches. Probably my biggest win for me at the Crucible was when I actually beat Steve Davis. I beat him in a semi-final, 16-14. Uh, uh, I'm not sure what year it was, but for me, you know, Steve Davis was the hardest player to beat. And uh, I think that was before Stephen uh, come along and started winning everything. I beat Steve Steve Davis. I think it might have been 88, 89, I'm not sure. But um, that was a fond memory for me. And also, obviously, the 82 plan, my hero, Hurricane Higgins, you know, and to come out to the atmosphere then, I was only a kid, you know, and uh, but i never forget the buzz I got from just walking out there playing you know, Hurricane Higgins, you know, I was introduced first because he was obviously a higher seed than me. And then when he come through the curtain, you know, Joe would tell you, you know, we, we grew up with Higgins and, uh, you know, whenever you played him, there was a special kind of atmosphere, nothing like the Crucible. Jim, let me ask you, you were, of course, in the seat when Higgins made that unbelievable break of 69 and everyone talks about him and that break, but no one really talks to you about it. And I'm, I've not even spoke to you about it. What what were your thoughts when you were sat there and he was just potting balls off lampshades? Because every when usually you play someone and they pot a ball and they're out of position, you sort of look up and you think, well, I'll have my shot next. So what was going through your mind? Well, there was a there was it was getting harder and harder for me prior a few a few games. That what people don't remember about in that match is that um, I was seven three up, and he went for a brown in the yellow pocket, which was by the blue, and he hit it so bad it went off. 
four cushions and went in the green, right? It went in the green pocket. So it's gone, not bump, 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 in the green pocket, bang on the blue. So that session, that would have been eight, three. There was only two more. So it would have been, it would have ended up eight, five or something. I can't, it, it could, the worst it could have been for me was eight, five, but it ended up eight, seven or something or seven each. I'm not sure. You know, that was a big turning point. But in them days, I didn't, I didn't take a lot of notes. I go and do exhibitions all over the world and they have a big screen up and they put that clearance up for me, thinking that I've never <laughs> seen it before, that I'm going to enjoy it. <laughs> so I have to sit there for a few minutes. But he potted some shots in that, which were, you know, five or six shots in that under that pressure was, you know, was just, I think that particular break helped make this tournament so special what it is and and this venue but yeah there was a few chances a few times sorry Andy that I thought I was gonna come back to the table let me ask you about that break right because um I, I've not mentioned this to you but a, a few people when when I've been away with you and we've done the Eurosport snooker and you just get talking snooker of an evening when you've got a bit of downtime I can't remember who mentioned this to me but someone said to me and I think it's a valid point and I wonder if you've ever thought about it like this that because you were such good mates with Higgins and he would have been the proudest man on the planet had you become champion in the world. A few people have suggested to me that he only went for those outrageous balls because he knew that if he missed, you would win. You would get into the final, possibly become world champion. And that he might not have taken on that break had it been anyone else in the chair. Do you, do you understand that? Is that fair? No. Totally. He, he wanted to win Higgins every time he, every time he got his cue up. There was one, there was one particular shot that was strange. He rolled a black into the end pocket where he could have snookered me, you know, and all or none. But um, the players, how they play today, would have gone for them shots as well. Whether they'd have got them or not, I don't know. Mm. Okay. Uh, Joe, listen, let's bring it back to date now. We're at the last four stage. Firstly, what have you made of, of the standard so far that you've seen? And um, who do you fancy to go all the way? Because it's been, I think, so difficult to pick a winner. Not necessarily in the first round because there's only a few upsets, but since then, so many players that you expect to be playing phenomenal. Neil Robertson's just been brilliant. Judd Trump's been playing so well as well. But neither of these two players are in the last four. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, the standard of play is unbelievable. I think we're going to break the uh, centuries. You know, the, the record is 100 centuries at the Crucible, and I think we've got every chance of doing that. Um, that, that tells you how high the standard is. And, and as far as who's going to win it, well, I think any of the four, obviously, but I think all four are being inspired. They're playing inspired snooker. So when something, when something goes wrong, their opponent is finding something from somewhere that to, to, you know, retaliate and, and, and get back in the game. You know, it, I don't think anybody's going to run away with any of these semifinals or final. It's just that the, the standard is so high. And Jimmy, do you think that if you've won it before at this stage, you've got more of a benefit than perhaps someone like Kyron Wilson, who's got beat in a final? How much does that count at this stage? Well, prior to the semi-final um, starting the shot, on form in this tournament, you had to make Mark Selby a huge favourite, which the bookmakers did. But he's finished off his match against Mark Williams. And for a frame and a half at the end of that match, he started to miss balls for some reason all over the place. He ended up, he won the match, obviously, because he was 12-3 up. 
113-3. And then coming into this uh, semi-final, um, he's played Stuart Bingham. He's 3-1 up in the first session. Uh, lucky to, in the end, getting out 4-4, really struggling. They're six each now as we speak. And, they, and Stuart Bingham has not punished him, in, and he won't keep getting chances. Stuart Bingham now has to stamp his authority because Selby, for some reason, is struggling in this semi-final. I have no idea why. Going on to the other semi-final, Carl Wilson snooker last night was the best I've ever seen him play. He's cue ball control. You know, he was just showing us what he really does have because we know what a great self-belief he has, what a great cue action he has, you know, and he disregards bad shots. He gets on with it. You know, the greatest winners in any sport, when it goes bad, they seem to blank it out and get on with the next shot, which he is doing. Going on to Sean Murphy, I think that Reddy missed in the, in the middle yesterday go 5-3 instead of 6-2 it was a huge mistake. You know, he got down. Obviously, there was pressure on it, and he rushed it. Some people who've just got such a beautiful, like, Rolls-Royce-like cue action, just they have a pre-shot routine. They don't really live the shot sometimes, and that particular shot for me, he didn't really um, weigh it up and the importance of it. He got down and just thought, I'm going to knock it in, and he missed it. 5-3. So I think Carl Wilson's going to win that. On form of what I've seen in the semi-finals so far to date, up to date, is Carl Wilson is going to be the new champion of the world. Wow. Jimmy, your, Jimmy, your punditry work's coming, coming along heaps and bounds. You, you should make a living doing this. It's quite good now. I've always been the best in the business, Andy. I know. And I, and I always <laughs> like carrying you when you come along and work for <laughs> yeah, It's it an honour to be carried. It was a great explanation. That really was. <laughs> it was. I, I agree with it all. And, um, you know, Karen Wilson, uh, yeah, he, he has got a great mental attitude. And, and so has Mark Selby. You know, both players, uh, you don't see them nodding about too much. Absolutely, you know, and, Joe. But you've got, sorry to interrupt you, but you've got to agree that for some reason, he's just all of a sudden, Mark Selby is just really, really struggling. I don't know if you've watched it this morning, but. He's been he's been awful, you know, for him, you know, because the way he dis disposed of Kirk Mafflin, well, okay, Mafflin not been he's not turned up for the last six, seven tournaments. I didn't think he had any chance, but he did, but he didn't see anything, right? And then his next match with Mark Williams, you know, and he's out, he was just outstanding. And then from somewhere, it, maybe he has a bit of self doubt. I don't know, but he's got Chris Henry, in, but he. I'm not saying he's going to lose this semi-final, but Carl Wilson has never beaten Mark Selby before, ever. So, um, you know, if they play like they're both playing now, there's only one winner for me. Okay. Uh, listen, one last thing uh, before I let you both go, because, of course, speaking of tournament finals at the Crucible, you've both got a chance to make it to another final there again. I'm talking about the World Seniors. That's next week. How are you both feeling ahead of the tournament? Jimmy, I'll come to you first. Well... I know Joe's not going to win it this year because he hasn't bothered to practice. He, Joe will probably win it next year when he gets his cue out. But uh, I've been, you know, I, since I lost to Stephen in the qualifiers, I've had a, I had a few days off and I've pre- played every day of this World Championship. So I'm nicely prepared. But obviously there's another 15 players in it as well. Yeah, I'm defending champion. He's defending champion as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And how are you feeling, Joe, ahead of it? 
Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, actually. You know, I play Ken Doherty and, um, yeah, I haven't played for a long time, but, you know, that, that won't stop me practising for the next few days and I've had uh, the cloth put on the table, so it's going to be, you know, more or less same as conditions that I'm going to. It's going to be great walking out of the Crucible, even though there's no crowds, but, um, you know, it's going to be filmed and, you know, I'm playing a, a former world champion. It's going to be exciting, yeah, without a doubt. Looking forward to it. Well, listen, uh, you've both been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time, Joe. Always a pleasure speaking to you. Good luck in the World Seniors. Thank you. And James, always an honour to see you. You look well, Jimmy. Keep up that punditry work. You're doing well. God bless, Anne. See you later, Joe. Cheers, guys. Yeah, that sadly is all we've got time for in this episode of The Break. Thanks so much for listening. Remember, please subscribe, rate and review this podcast on your platform of choice if you can we would love you forever for it and don't forget of course Eurosport is the place to watch live coverage of the World Snooker Championship from now until of course the final session on the evening of Monday the 3rd of May and as usual you can follow everything on Eurosport.co.uk and the Eurosport app from myself it's goodbye and thanks for listening Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.